and welcome back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. Travis here on another solo episode, Flying High, Flying Solo. We are here with episode 28 of our Penguin Little Black Classics review collection. This is when we take Penguin's 80 Little Black Classics, which are kind of a it's kind of a sampling of world literature, and we review them one per week. Until we're done, and then at that point, uh, we'll have to make some big decisions. Ryan, my uh, brother and podcast compatriot, is still out on parental duty. He's a new father, and he and his wife had a baby. If you've been listening to the pod, you know that. I've been updating. Uh, And so I'm here with another solo episode for the holiday season. It's into December. I'm hoping to get in one more, maybe two more episodes before the year ends, but we're basically at the end of 2019, which is a pretty frightening proposition uh, when I say it out loud. But we're here, we're potting, we're talking about literature, so things are well enough in the world. Today we set out to tackle a truly legendary piece of literature, something that graces many high school curricula to this day, and definitely college literature programs. Um, Kind of a, I was going to say infamous, definitely not infamous, maybe to high schoolers, because I think high schoolers get tired of reading Chaucer. But we're here with a selection from the Canterbury Tales. We've got some Geoffrey Chaucer. Um, Specifically, Penguin has chosen to include the wife of Bath, or Bath, I'm going to say Bath. It's not a pronunciation I looked up. It could be that uh, the medieval pronunciation is far different than what I'm going to say. But I'm going to say Bath, just like it looks and just how I would normally use that noun. Um, Yeah, so we're here, and we're going to review The Wife of Bath. For these solo episodes where I'm just recording by myself, I've been playing around with the structure. Usually we do kind of a quick review and then quotes, then connections, and then we end with a longer and scored review. I'm going to do another sort of play with that structure this week. I just figure as long as I have no one to bounce ideas off of, I may as well do things a little bit differently and try some different formats. This week we're going to kind of do a, I guess you could call it like a courtroom-esque setup where I'm going to present one side of a kind of argument and then present the other side. And then as in any functioning society and courtroom, I'm going to make my own ruling. I'm going to preside over my own arguments on both sides and then decide one or the other. Um, I think it'll be, you know, a bit of a different format and should maybe be useful as an analytical tool. I think that was kind of the goal is just find different ways to discuss the literature and talk about the books and their merits or lack of merits. So that's the format. Uh, My other idea was to set up, sort of do this episode framed around one big central question and then just attack that question from all angles or sort of describe it from all angles, cover it. Uh, The question I initially settled on when I finished this, and I suppose my background with um, the Canterbury Tales, is I never had to read them. And I have a degree in English literature, but I have somehow missed them. I didn't read them in high school. It was not mandatory reading for me then. And then I did have a Shakespeare class in college that was required, but otherwise I mostly read American stuff and didn't really do a ton of British literature except for my own interests. So Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales I know only from reputation and from just sort of the history of English literature, I suppose. Um, but upon finishing this, The Wife of Bath, I the, the question that I immediately wanted to ask and then have the text respond to was if it is a, a kind of a landmark feminist text or not. I would be shocked if there were a work of literature that was older than this in English that were written originally in English, I mean, that was considered like a, you know, like a tentpole of, of feminism and feminist thought. And I, it's, it's a perfect question for this book. 
And then I just realized I'm unqualified. It's 2019. There's been, even in the past two years, some pretty significant shifts, I'm sure, in sort of theory, and there's different waves of feminism. I like to think I keep up with those things. It's social, that, that cultural social movement as much as anyone could. I consider myself a feminist, but I just felt like I I don't think I could fully explore those questions. There's I don't know. It just feels like shaky uh, moving ground at the moment. Um, but yeah, for the better, there's a lot of good developments in the last year or two. Um, so I'm going to skip over that question for now, though. If you're a feminist or you're having, you're intrigued by the history of that movement or that social, uh, political, and cultural idea, this would be a extremely potent text to engage with. So, but I'm not going to on those terms exactly. I'm kind of going to dance around it. Um, instead, I'm going to bounce to a question that uh, is a little broader, and that is: Is this text, The Wife of Bath, better as a piece of entertainment? which I think some people still go to reading for that, though many also go to TV for that. Or is it better as a critique, so as a social commentary, which definitely gets into some feminism stuff. Again, I'm not going to unpack that sort of in a theoretical lens, but just something a bit simpler. And that's the question I'm going to pose. And then, again, I'm going to set up kind of a debate here. I'm going to first tackle the entertainment side and make the case that it's better as an entertainment and then the second half will be about a critique and a social critique, and that it's better as that than it is as a pure entertainment. Uh, I'm not going to do too many counter arguments, like a you know, like a real sort of scored high school or college esque debate, uh, mostly because those are lame, and I don't want to be too negative on something I actually had a very strong positive reaction to. But I'll throw in some brief counters. I'm not going to be a hundred percent effusive and glowing about it. And one more thing before I get started, just to be clear on my own kind of position and view, this is an arbitrary question and arbitrary division that I've set up here. Honestly and obviously, probably, if you're listening to this, good art can do both at the same time. It can entertain you and make you feel delighted and then also critique something and make you rethink something in, in the world. That's honestly what it should be doing. And so this is sort of a arbitrary division. I do feel, though that high art, low art, that kind of debate often takes this form where it's like, well, does it have, you know, does it have a valid complex critique or is it more just making us have a good time and then we get to go home and not think much about it? So I think the, the divide is real. It's not one I believe in that strongly. I certainly think any great work will have both entertainment value and critique to it and sort of subtlety, but I think it works to kind of show off different parts of this work. Then let us begin. Let's adjourn. Wait. Adjourn is when it ends. We're not going to adjourn. Not yet. Not for 25-ish minutes, 20-ish minutes. Instead, let's get court in session. Uh, I'm going to first pose the case that The Wife of Bath is uh, pure entertainment, and that's why you should read it. Firstly, it's hilarious. It's hilarious on almost every page, though not every page. But it's funny, and it accomplishes its comedy in about every way you could set out to, I expect. It has, you know, dramatic twists, it has turns of phrase, puns. I pulled a couple of my favorites. Um, the author definitely relies on for the narrator. And to be clear, the narrator is this wife of uh, Bath, and she initially gives her prologue, which is like a 35-page background about her life, and then she tells a story or a tale which I think in the Canterbury Tales is kind of how the entire structure set up, these people just telling stories. So that's the structure. But the narrator is given so many tremendously funny lines. There's extended metaphors. I think this is my favorite. She says, 
There are those who mean to live in their virginity, as clean in body as in soul, and never mate. As in a noble household, we are told, not every dish and vessel is made of gold. Some are of wood, yet earn their master's praise. God calls his folk to him in many ways. Those sort of clever twists on, you know, how to treat, in the medieval context, how to treat a woman who's, in her case, has been married five times, you know, and is no longer pure in the, in the Christian interpretation of that word. Uh, and that's, you know, that's just a great little twist on that and a good, funny comparison. Because, yeah, man, who doesn't love a guy? I have a good wooden bowl that's, you know, my most trustworthy object, I think. Um, don't sleep on the, the staying power of wood, I think. Not a commentary on my own or my brother's last name either. It also has euphemisms, lots of them. There's tons of wordplay in here. I wouldn't say Shakespearean levels of uh, rapid-fire wordplay, but there's a lot. Uh, my favorite euphemism is probably, what means of paying her can he invent unless he use his silly instrument? I think silly is the, uh, the perfectly operative word there. No, no real additional commentary required on that front. I think I'll let the, the people, the listeners, interpret that one. Um, and it's got hyperbole. I pulled one from page 28. It says, quote, By God, if women had but written stories like those of the clergy, or sorry, like those the clergy keep in oratories, more had been written of man's wickedness than all the sons of Adam could redress. Probably true. Probably not even hyperbole. That's um, the history of the world is essentially just that, but, you know, a lot of the times glossed over with a nice coat of you know, golden or platinum paint, I guess you could say. Uh, so that one might not even be hyperbole. I did think, though, it was pretty funny. I like the address to God, too, at the beginning of it. Um, and it's good to call, you know, the sons of Adam in. It's just about everybody's problem. So that seems fair in the Christian understanding. It's also entertaining to, and I, we've talked about this, I think, in a couple episodes ago in regards to the um, Inferno, which is the Dante uh, Italian poem, there's just so many allusions in this story, um, and I didn't quote many of them. I'm just going to kind of fire some of them off from memory or from, you know, from summary. But there's just so many allusions that I even found it hard or thought it would be worth researching to see if some of them originated here in this text. Like, for example, she has these extended comparisons to women sort of behaving like cats, sort of saying, you know, you can't, when you, when you show them you really want them to do something, they won't. And then if you if you don't show them affection, then they want affection which I've definitely heard that comparison um, come up before. I feel like modern rom-coms have made jokes like that, or I know that there's the the current image of like the cat lady, quote-unquote, but there's this association between um, women and cats that I, I don't know if that originated here. I honestly can't say. Again, if it originated somewhere in the English language earlier, I don't know where it would be. Um, obviously, in the history of world languages, it's it could be much older, but I'm not sure. So there's that. There's references to King Arthur and Queen Guinevere. That's actually the entire her entire tale involves Queen Guinevere. It doesn't really involve King Arthur very much. There's tons of Greek allusions to uh, to Ovid, to King Midas, and there's Roman ones. I don't even remember the Roman ones. I didn't write them down. Bible references fly off the page. I mean, I just read a quote, you know, seconds ago about um, about Adam and about kind of like original sin she references that a few times and she references abraham and some bible verses she might even go so far as to quote some bible verses uh, we'll see if i pulled those for later but there are, it's extended references to the bible um and to the teachings of jesus 
There's a reference to men being from Mars and women being from Venus. So there's some astrology of, of sorts in there. Um, please don't at me about astrology things. It's a topic I know nothing about at all. Though I did have a friend who tried to like diligently teach me, but it seems like kind of a full-time job keeping up with like astrological signs. And that's I can see how that there's like a whole market around that because that seems complicated and you have to... Yeah, it's its own uh, little bit of knowledge. But those are just some examples I wanted to reference. But if you just want to go into something knowing, you know, this person will, quote unquote, be speaking my language, you know, referring to the things I know, I I bet you'll find things to enjoy in here and think about. And it's fairly layered, you know, but some of the illusions aren't that complicated, frankly, like the references to God and the Bible. If you have a passing knowledge of Christianity, even, I think you'd be okay to understand some of the basic morality and the principles of Christian of the Christian Bible. So let's move into the two final points I want to make for a case of entertainment here. And the probably the most important one is the character, the main character, the wife of Bath, is so blissfully self-assured and sort of has a self-deprecating side and is just so fearless in her opinions that it's a treat to read the character. I mean, it's... Um, you can phrase this however you want, like, you know, she's so relatable, She's she jumps off the page, there's a lot of, I guess, cliches you could say about it, but I mean, they're mostly true here for her. Um, I think her her age, you know, in medieval, by medieval standards, is she's considering herself, kind of talks about herself like she's, she's ancient and withered in a way. I think she mentions that she's 40 or 50, so, you know, in the modern understanding, definitely not old, um, but she has a quote on page 20 that says, I've had my fruit, I've had my world in time, I've had my fling. The flower is gone, there is no more to say, and I must sell the brand as best I may, but still I mean to find my way to fun. Which I think, you know, it's an attitude we can all celebrate. Life is never over until it's over, you know? There's still time to make things happen, to set goals, in her case to marry another man and find maybe marital joy and uh, happiness. I don't think she had found that in her other marriages, which she describes in a lot of detail. But she's just a fun character to hear her life story, which the first 35 pages, that's essentially what she's doing, is just laying out the history of her life. And she's, again, self-deprecating in that way. She's honest and also harsh when she needs to be. And there are definitely times when you want her to be harsh. That transitions me to my final point, which is there's a lot of kind of vengeance in her tales. It's sort of like her marriages have been extremely uh, dis- disquieting. That's a pretty generous way to put it. They've been uh, just abusive at times. They've been, you know, brutal. And then some of them just boring. You know, kind of very, there's kind of a spectrum there between brutal and boring. But it's a joy to read her sort of take the husbands down. And you can kind of enjoy the vengeance and manipulation. Um, not only because it's humorous, which I kind of covered already, but just because you want to sympathize with her. She's just such a, you know, pleasant person to hear speak. The primary tale at the end, uh, after the prologue is over, is kind of a tale of revenge against a, a horrible, I mean, a rapist, frankly. I mean, just a horrible knight, a misbehaving, non-chivalrous knight. And that sort of is satisfying in its own little twisty way. It kind of reminded me of a fairy tale. It had a very fairy tale twist at the center of it, which means you can probably predict it, but not um, doesn't make it dissatisfying to read. I think the the traits that she addresses in the vengeance and manipulation, like you know, she's spreading rumors and um, misinformation. She's withholding sex. She causes conflict in her marriage because her husbands are either again outright abusive, like domestically violent, or they are just annoying, or they're manipulative and controlling. 
there's, I think, just such a glee then when she kind of lays out her plans and plots against some of them and sort of the ways she manipulates and tricks them. And it's, you know, I'm not going to say I love a vengeance tale. There does seem to be something at the core of people, um, just, I guess, I mean, humanity that loves revenge. Uh, and I, that's a philosophical issue that we can grapple with in a different episode. But it doesn't feel so guilty here to, to kind of enjoy it and to revel in it, I guess. You know, it's sort of like there was a footage, there was footage this week of Harvey Weinstein. Uh, this is 2019, by the way, in case you're listening to this years from now. Harvey Weinstein, a serial sexual predator in Hollywood, movie producer guy, whatever. But there was footage this week of him going to the courtroom, like in a, in, not in a stroller, but with a wheeler thing. And it was, I guess, maybe a manipulation for him to seem sympathetic but I don't know. I see that, and I just like kind of just like, can't you just cackle? I mean, it's not going to undo the damage he's done. But you're like, who cares if he withers away now? I mean, I, who's the sympathy play for? Is that really work? Um, and you know, the husbands in this story are not dissimilar. They do horrible things, and she retaliates. So you just don't feel that bad at like enjoying the the misery a bit. She says, "Quote on seventeen. So there's one thing at least that I can boast that in the end I always ruled the roast." Cunning or force was sure to make them stumble and always keeping up a steady grumble. And uh, you can hear the, you can just hear her husband's grumbling in the castle walls or the the house walls in which they lived together. And she can make a line like that not horrifying sounding. And it doesn't turn her into a sort of archetypal evil femme fatale sort of like we've, we've invented that trope since this was written, obviously, but it, she completely avoids that. She's well humanized and has depth and complexity, which we'll get to in a second in the critique side. I think as an entertainment where it falls apart or the, you know, the brief case against it, I don't think the tale is as good as the prologue, though the tale itself, again, if it has this kind of fairy tale-ish element and it does have great lines and everything. It's not uninteresting. It's just is a tad predictable, I guess, and I kind of wanted more from the the queen and king characters who really aren't in it at all, frankly. It's mostly about the knight and um, this wo- this woman who he meets. And I think too, as an entertainment, you know, it does have a style that's hard to overcome for a modern reader. It's it has heavy rhyme. There are a lot of allusions, and it's I would say kind of dense with with rhetoric. And you know, it'll be things that these are lines that you'll have to reread. It's not something that you can just bring to the beach, as they say these days. But I think you actually could. I don't know. If you're if you're a little bit determined, you definitely could. So it's perhaps not a perfect entertainment, but it doesn't have to be. No, no uh, literature should be held to that standard of perfection. I think it has plenty of entertainment value. But to make sure I jump to the other side now and cast my defense or my, um, my proposal for the critique, I do think that this could also be read strictly as a social critique and sort of as a text, whether that was to analyze the kind of role of women in medieval society or, again, as like an early uh, feminist manifesto of of a kind or of a sort. This is rich for that. Um, Let's lay out some reasons why. It visits rhetorical battlefields that it must, and it does it with pretty subtle but clear authority. It references God a lot in the Bible, and if you're living in a civilization as like controlled by Christianity as this one was, you have to you have to speak that language cleverly and use it to your advantage. Um, it also relies on some classical sources too, from Greece and Rome, which would also have played you know with a good amount of authority. But I do I did find most of the arguments that utilize the scripture or allusions to be the most compelling, and and they're very efficient too. Um, I think probably on page five, which is pretty early, is one of my favorites. It says, I know 
that Abraham was a holy man, and Jacob too, I speak as best I can, yet each of them we know had several brides, like many another holy man besides. And this is something she comes back to, which is essentially, if you read the Bible, you know, there, there's contradictory verses in the Bible, there's pretty, you know, the Ten Commandments are pretty clear, and those don't really have anything against remarrying. She just lays out her case as logically as you would hope. And gives the sources and utilizes those sources that you would need to use and, and give in that social context. I, I don't know if a 2019 reader is going to first inquire in a social commentary of this sort, hey, does it check out with the Bible? But, I mean, you know, b- some billions of people on earth probably still would. You know, the secular world is not all-encompassing by a long shot. So in that regard, it's kind of impressive how it utilizes those. Also, and for me, probably the most important point as a critique, it's it's deep and complex, and so psychologically complex, which those feel like simple descriptions and simple compliments, but the prologue and the narrative itself have a lot of comments, and they, they touch on a lot of facets of not only just feminism, but different social theories and, and social ideas that have been developed since then. I would, of course, never guess, or I would never say that this wife of uh, bath story predicted these things i always think that's like a very tricky thing to say but it definitely includes them and, and sort of deals with them on page 21 it kind of talks about how the social theory of a cycle of abuse can take place and what it looks like it's, it's a problematic quote but on um it's pretty potent on 21 she says so coaxing, so persuasive, though he had beaten me in every bone, he could still wheedle me to love I own. I think I loved him best, I'll tell no lie. And that's a quote about her fourth husband. Extremely difficult to read. Um, the, the wheedle verb, I think, is the right one there. It's sort of an acknowledgement of a little bit of trickery, even though she calls it love as well. That's, you know, that's why love can be complicated. Um, and I do think that that sort of hints at the things she wants out of a marriage or maybe doesn't want. And, you know, she has four previous husbands to speak of. So even within those four, there's different things you can sort of pick out and little lessons to be learned from each. Um, she is fair to acknowledge imperfections in herself and that she's not a perfect sort of lover. She doesn't claim perfection. Uh, on page seven, she says, he spoke to those that would live, live imperfectly. Actually, I should set up this quote. He in this quote is Jesus. <laughs> Sorry, I should clarify. It's another illusion she's making. But um, she says that Jesus spoke to those that would live perfectly. And by your leave, my lords, that's not for me. I will bestow the flower of life, the honey, upon the acts and fruit of matrimony. A touch of honesty there. Um, some interesting imagery with the flower of life and honey. Um, obviously, flower life you could interpret to be just sort of a, a reproductive reference, but I think the the honey is a bit different. I, I wonder if in today's interpretation, that would be sort of like the 1950s Americana idea of, you know, the wife is the, the pleasant housekeeper. Make sure you smile when your husband returns home from work. That kind of like honey sweetness idea. Um, I, I don't quite read it that way. Um, and certainly her, the other passages here would contradict that, I think. But even the fact that it's a bit contradictory is interesting and, again, leaves a lot of room for interpretation and debate, I think. Um, not, I'm not going to give too many more, more quotes for the psychological stuff, but she talks a lot about embracing sexual pleasure and sexual freedom and, and sort of having choice. I think some of the comedy quotes I gave, sort of entertainment ones, cover that. The queen in the tail half, Guinevere, she is a figure of justice and mercy, though 
her decisions are sort of intriguing, maybe given medieval, the medieval legal context, it would, they'd make more sense. I won't, you know, spoil, quote unquote, the, the story, but I think that's, there's ideas in there about what female leadership could be or when women should lead or when they shouldn't. And it's an intriguing part of the tale. Um, there's definitely reference to whether these are societal expectations or, you know, if there's like a created social patriarchy or if it's biological truths that are determining behavior, you know, for men and women in the in the narrative. On page 47, um, the narrator of that story says, quote, For fire will keep its nature in degree, I can assure you, sir, until it dies. But gentleness, as you will recognize, is not annexed in nature to possessions. Men fail in living up to their professions, but fire never ceases to be fire. It's a pretty damning quote, and, you know, you can't invoke fire imagery without it being violent and destructive. In this case, it's warlike application, you know, in the medieval medieval use would be pretty obvious, and obviously men were knights then and upholding, well, supposedly upholding a code of chivalry and all that. I think it, there are questions then about, well, it, it, how much of this can we fix? How much of it can't we? These are questions that, I mean, still rage on as far as my understanding. Um, it's, you know, December 2019, and The Atlantic just published a really long piece. I didn't even finish it. I think I read half of it. But I think the title of it was something like, what, what, do, do, what do we do with our boys, essentially? Like, what, how are we raising boys these days? There's still significant problems, you know, in terms of how boys are being taught to be men and what that even means, if it even has a clear meaning anymore, or even if it should have a clear meaning. And so these are things that are not um, these questions of biological, leaning into biological certainties versus, you know, controlling social conditions. They're relevant questions still, and this text poses them in some subtle ways, but it does pose them and kind of addresses them in, in a sense. So it has all of that, and I think it was better for it. And I'm going to quickly contrast with my next point and just say that it's not infinitely complex. Obviously, no text is, but I think there's pretty great clarity. You definitely won't finish The Wife of Bath and think, gosh, that, that person or, you know, Chaucer had no idea what the commentary was there. They, that's just a hundred ideas they threw at a dartboard. I think it's it's freedom and choice. That's pretty much, you can simplify it to that in the 2019 slang. That's the tweet right there. Just put that out there. That's what the, the narrator and the, the wife of Bath is asking for. She has her main character kind of surrogate in the tale say, a woman wants the same self-sovereignty, or the self-same sovereignty, over her husband as over her lover and master him. He must not be above her. Now, it's an intriguing wordplay there because she wants to master him but then not be above. I suppose they're thinking there maybe of equal mastery. I mean, the, the marriage is supposed to be total equality, which... I don't know. As soon as the master verb comes in, I feel like it's complicated. But I think within that statement, though, if you wanted to simplify it to just, yeah, she doesn't want to be lorded over, controlled, manipulated, and, you know, always told what to do by her husband. And I think that is the clear takeaway. Like that message comes up a couple more times and even in the prologue such that, you know, I don't think you'll leave this text thinking, oh, that's just a jumbled mess of, you know, ideas. I think it does have moments of clarity like that where you think, okay, that's there are, there are simplifications here in a good sense of what I can learn and what Chaucer was maybe putting forward in the tale. And then my, my final compliment for it as a critique is it has a complete, and let's jump back to AP English quick for, for you guys out there listening, it has a complete kind of Aristotelian rhetorical triangle to it. it. It has pathos, ethos, logos. And I mean, hopefully by now, after me rambling for half an hour-ish, 
you've seen them all. She, the, the narrator can make you laugh and cry. She's humorous. She also has a brutal past, which I think endows her with a good amount of pathos. Ethos, I mean, she's been married five times, and she runs through all of the faults and all of the mistakes and all the manipulations of all the marriages. I don't know what could be better ethos than that. I know people who have had one marriage already proclaim themselves marriage experts as they should. And so, yeah, she is that in spades. Logos, I, again, in the critique section, hopefully just laid it out. She uses the Bible's own logic and and scripture and passages. She references Greek and Roman titans. You know, she talks a lot about the intellectual history there and academic things. There's a lot of allusions. And I think in that way, even to a modern audience, it's a pretty compelling case. Her her kind of logical leaps and jumps are, are straightforward. She's very efficient in the way that she's written and as a narrator character. She's quite efficient and, again, humorous, which I don't think hurts. So I think she's got the sort of whole triangle covered. If, if you consider that to be effective rhetoric, then, yeah, this is, a, this is an exemplar text for that, I think. Where, as a critique, does it not hold up? I, again, it comes down to me to be the, the tale. I think the tale is a little bit simplified. Um, the prologue, to me, has a bit more, I don't know, interest and intrigue and complexity in its ideas, I think. I think also if you want to levy the criticism against it, that it has some parts that are... Like, I guess you could say problematic or contradictory. Uh, to me, though, that's just uh, any intriguing idea that is dealing with a difficult enough topic will have, if not contradictions in it, then maybe some seeming contradictions or some difficulties with trying to square ideas together. Um, that's just the kind of nature of human humanity and human density, in, in a sense, human emotions and psychology. So to me, that's not really a problem, but I could see people picking out lines here and being, you know, coming up with classic sort of like, oh, but you know, but she said this, and so that contradicts this line. Um, Again, though, that to me just makes for more robust debate and kind of can tease out some ideas of interest. So now we consult the judge, who is also myself in this case, and to to make a ruling or determination uh, before I do decide whether it's a better entertainment or critique. Let me just say that on the Brothers Book Club podcast rating scale, it is a three. It's the first three we've had in a while. Three means you must read it. I I don't know if you should read the rest of the Canterbury Tales. I have not. I don't know the rest of them. I don't know if they're as insightful and humorous and just kind of entertaining, but also have, you know, social and relevant social commentary. I definitely can't promise any of that, but you definitely have to go read The Wife of Bath. It's quite a fascinating read, especially in 2019. You know, we're in the middle of Me Too, the Me Too movement. There's, again, high-level like litigation going on about sexual predatory behavior and violence, and it's just a, it is a dense issue for our time, and to see it spoken about with clarity and, uh, and even some humor and wit, like I've hopefully laid out, is sort of, I don't know, is refreshing in a way, maybe depressing. I, I guess that would be a fair response to it, too. I do think, though, that you should engage with it um, on either. If you think your reaction will be either, I still think it's worth kind of exploring. So it's a three. Definitely read this. I don't know if Ryan agrees, but when we get him back on here, I'll have him run down some, some of his favorites. Hopefully this is a three for him as well. So yeah, you must read this. Now, final ruling. I think I came away from it more impressed as a critique, and it's just because of how like devastatingly relevant a lot of it felt in, in both subtle and sort of macro ways, so both the macro and the micro of it, both little details, like that cycle of abuse quote was just so crystal clear, and it was like, man, that is, she's expressing a social idea that it took us hundreds more years to kind of define and, and put a theory behind. It also presents, you know, her own views of women and their role as sort of like, at times, it feels like she's giving into a lot of stereotype and sort of 
even maybe generalizing in a negative way herself, but then also, you know, her calls for liberation are so understandable and, and have a lot of reflection or, or definitely are reflected in today's culture. And so I just walked away from it. Again, I, I didn't want to take up feminism as the main topic for today, just because there's just a lot to keep up with. And I, I felt like, you know, on this podcast, we do some light research, but that's a topic I'd be way more comfortable if you gave me, you know, some weeks or months to like, uh, get, let me, give me a couple books, you know, let me revisit some articles. Or, you know, I, I would just be way more comfortable that uh, in those conditions. So as a quick conversational pod, I, I didn't feel like that was the way, but it, I still think that it comes across more impressively as a kind of social commentary for not only, again, medieval life, but our modern life too. Hopefully that uh, justification wasn't too rambling. And as an entertainment, frankly, you're going to get a lot out of it, too. So you're not going to come away from this feeling bored, or I'd be shocked if you did. Even, and I'll end on this note, even the end rhyming did not bother me that much here. And it was persistent. It's an A-A-B-B rhyme scheme throughout the entire poem, which is like 55 pages or something. And so that should be praise enough coming from me, who is a pretty, on this podcast anyway, has been pretty dedicated to abolishing all rhyme schemes that are too strict. All right, my goal for this podcast was to make a slightly longer episode than 20 minutes, and hey, I accomplished that, and then some. Um, Hopefully you've been patient enough and generous enough to finish the whole thing. I appreciate you listening in. If you don't have a copy of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, hey, it's the holiday season, it would make for a cheap, cheap gift for the holidays. Gosh, at a used bookstore, you could probably get a copy for like a 50 cents at this point. It's got to be one of the most commonly published things ever. And so, yeah, go back to your old high school reading list, pick up a copy. It's a three for us here at the Brothers Book Club podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Next week, we have coming up a French philosopher's collection, which I'm not holding in my hand, so I can't tell you what it is, but I remember thinking it was intriguing. I'll get more into it in the review next week. Um, So yeah, some French philosophy. And then we'll see if we can fit in one more pod before the new year. As always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week between the classics.